So for the month of October, uh, we have been celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Reformation by spending Sundays looking at some of the key themes of the Reformation and why they're important to us today. So why, with, with what Martin Luther did and started 500 years ago and how that is trickled down to us sitting in Bellevue in 2017, why, why care? Why, why, did, why did things that happened 500 years ago matter to us today as a church? Because we stand firmly in the tradition of the Reformation as Protestants. And we want to understand why that is. And so this Sunday, we're going to look at another theme of the Reformation and understand why it, how it applies to us as a church living in Bellevue, Nebraska in 2017. And so if we were to step back 500 years ago, we would see that the leaders of the Reformation were locked in a no-holds-bar struggle against the Roman Catholic Church and the, the stranglehold that they had on the narrative of the day. And this is what I mean. A person's identity, how they understood and related to God, how they worked, how they spent their money, how they raised their family, their values, and their ethics were all largely controlled by the Roman Catholic Church because the Roman Catholic Church controlled the scriptures. But here's what happens. Martin Luther sent away to study a doctorate in theology, got to study the scriptures up close. He got to look at the scriptures firsthand and began reading them, and he began to notice something. Not all that the church taught and practiced aligned with God's word. And so he began to push back and began to ask questions. Things started stirring in his mind and in his heart, saying, what, why are, what, what we do and what we practice and what we teach, it doesn't line up with the word of God in all cases, and that's a problem. And so Luther and the other reformers began pushing for what became known as sola scriptura, which is the belief that scripture alone is the highest authority. And the Reformation called church leaders to teach only what was found in the scriptures and to order worship and church practice around scripture alone and not allowing tradition to dictate what they taught and how they worshiped. And the other side of this too, the Reformation strongly asserted that scriptures were for the entire church, not just for a select group of leaders in the church, not for just an elite class, but the entire church. If the, if the church was going to be reformed, if, if God's church was going to worship as Scripture had called them, if people were going to have genuine faith in Christ and grow into maturity, everyone needed access to the Scriptures. And so at its heart, the Reformation was a movement back to the authority of Scripture. And so this morning, I want us to consider the significance of sola scriptura. I want us to understand why basing our teaching and our practice on scripture alone is so important to us and for us. And so from 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17, there are three things I want to highlight about God's word and the scriptures. One, that they are understandable. Two, that they are inspired. And three, they are powerful. So let's first turn to this idea that the scriptures are understandable. And so at the time of the Reformation, here's what the Roman Catholic Church taught. The scriptures were too complex for the average person to understand. And so you needed this select group of people to interpret and teach the scriptures. If you gave the scriptures to everybody, chaos. 
everybody's going to have their own interpretation and, and there's going to be problems all throughout the church because everyone's going to run around saying, this is, what it, this is what scripture means or no, no, this is what it means. No, this is what it means. And so there was this belief that, hey, if we give the scriptures to everyone, it's going to be problematic. And so the Roman Catholic Church kept tight control on official teaching and by limiting it to what was called the magisterium. And so the magisterium was the pope and just a select few of bishops who kind of run in the pope's circle, guys that are sort of identified as, hey, you can, you can sort of declare authoritative teaching. And so no interpretation or practice could challenge or contradict what had been handed down by the magisterium, unless it was a later magisterium, which if you study church history, you see that the, sometimes popes contradicted each other. And so access to the scriptures being limited meant that the scriptures were actually not written in anybody's common language, kept in Latin, because only the educated could read Latin. And, and even there, if you were a priest, you only got part of the scriptures. You only got what the bishop would hand to you. And so there was a very tight control on who had actually had access. To sit down with your Bible, just you and your Bible, was unheard of. Now, contrast this sentiment. Contrast the idea that the scriptures are too complex for the average person to understand, that it has to be tightly controlled by a select group of people. Contrast that with what Paul writes to Timothy in, in 2 Timothy 2, or excuse me, 2 Timothy 3. So Timothy is a young pastor in the city of Ephesus, and he's facing a number of challenges. He's facing false teachers coming in, trying to teach things against the gospel. He's facing sort of immaturity and ungodliness in the church, so Christians not acting as they should. He's, he's facing Christians who are chasing after weird doctrines and want to get in debates about silly myths. So he has this challenge on his hands, and Paul is trying to encourage him. And he's trying to encourage him by grounding Timothy's confidence in the power and the authority of the word of God. And in 2 Timothy 3, 14 and 15, Paul tells Timothy, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. Paul is saying, Timothy, put your confidence in God's word because you know God's word. Put your confidence in what you have been taught and what you have been learning since childhood. That's your confidence to face down the challenges, Timothy. You have learned these things. You know them. And don't let anyone tell you otherwise. And so Paul is going at Timothy's understanding of Scripture and saying, look, bro, you know the Scriptures. Stick with them. Hold tight to them. They are your confidence. They are your solution. And hear me on this. He's not grounding his confidence in the scriptures because Timothy is a pastor and he belongs to a select group. He's saying, Timothy, you're a Christian. You belong to God just by basis of the fact that you belong to Jesus Christ. You know the scriptures. Put your confidence in them. And so stand strong on the word of God because you can confidently know and understand the word. So Timothy's confidence starts with the fact that God has revealed himself to us in his word, and we can know that word. So can anyone read this statement? If you can see that. So, Feru bivkra yukdot krenlap kvidit Jesu Christ kolrab druensa aradne erxis abret ferus bivkre. Come on, there's linguists in the room. 
Anybody recognize that language? <laughs> yeah, one word. It's a little bit of a trick question. Um, I completely made that up. I, I, threw, I threw the Jesu Christ in there just to throw you, to make you think, oh, man, it might be some, some arcane language. But no, it's completely made up. I just try to throw some words together that might pass as a language. It's unintelligible. It's not true language. This is not how God has communicated to us. He has not communicated to us in unintelligible gibberish. He has communicated to us clearly in words that we know, in language that we understand. He has come down to us as human beings and communicated to us on our level. And he's done so so that we can know him. He hasn't hidden himself away in obscure and arcane and coded language. He's revealed himself to us through words, words that we can know, words that we can understand. The original languages of Scripture, so Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek, were the language of the common person. The language that whether you were an educated Greek or Hebrew or whether you were a common tradesman, you could understand the words and the language in the Scriptures. It's not just some special class of people in the church who have a special decoder ring. It's everyone who can understand the language of Scripture. Now, important caveat. This doesn't mean that everything in Scripture is equally easy to just understand first glance. The Bible uses a full range of human language and expressions and was written, at least for us, in a distant time and culture. So some things are challenging because of gaps in our understanding. But here's what the Reformers were clear on and what we need to be clear on. The problem is not the clarity of Scripture. The problem is gaps in our understanding. The the problem is where we don't have enough knowledge or understanding of culture or of language or particular context. It's not as if God has spoken in this really weird and obscure way and we're like, there's no way I can understand it. It's, no, God has communicated clearly. We just need to figure out where those gaps are. And so we need to study. We need to put in the hard work of sort of eliminating those gaps in our understanding. We need help from good teachers, both present and in the past. And so we need to do the work of study. But that work has promise. Because God's word is understandable, we can understand it. We can put in the work and understand even the parts that are hard. We also have to recognize that sometimes what blinds us is not here, but here. Sometimes what blinds us is our hardness of heart and how we want to rebel against God's word. We want to stiff arm God's word. And believe me, that affects your understanding of God's word. And so we need to be careful that our, that, that our un- inability to understand is not because we are walking in hardness of heart. But whatever the cause may be, the reformers teach us that any in the church can understand the scriptures. Because if you belong to Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit enlightens your mind and your heart to the truth of God's word. And so you can work and you can study with hope and confidence that God will reveal himself to you because he has not hidden himself and the scripture understandable. Here's another important caveat. Sola scriptura does not mean solo 
scriptura. Just me and my Bible. Though scripture is for everyone in the church, it's for all of us together. Scripture was given to us as a community. It's meant to be studied and learned and read in community. The reformers were clear. This doesn't mean we go isolate ourselves on our own and study. No, we join the church. Because here, here's something that if you look at church history, every significant heresy, every significant heresy has been started by an individual man or a small group of people who decided to pull away from the church and start studying the scriptures on their own. They're saying, I don't want to submit to the church anymore. I'm going to go and make my own interpretation. We're going to have our own thing going on here. And so they detached themselves from the community that they were meant to read it in, the community that holds us accountable, the community that checks and challenges our interpretations so we don't go off the rails. And so this was never meant to just be you and your Bible in isolation. If, if the way you interpret Scripture isn't how anybody else has ever interpreted Scripture, probably an issue there. But this is, this is the gift that God, God's word is to us as a people. We come together. The church is an interpretive community together. We do this as a family. And in that, there is promise. We're going to see the truth of Scripture. We're going to see its real meaning. And we're going to be held accountable when we go off the rails or when our interpretation doesn't line up. Look, you're never going to know the scriptures as well as you're called to if you do it by yourself. You're never going to see everything you need to see if you read by yourself. And really, it's modern American individualism that says it can be just me and my Bible. That is not biblical study. That is not the biblical way to engage the scriptures. The Reformation and following the teaching of scripture reminds us that you need to read this in community. So no solo scriptura. And so at First City, our response to the truth that the scriptures are understandable is be a student. This is one of our gospel identities at First City Church. We are students. As disciples, we are students of his word. And so the fact that God has made his word understandable means let's be students. Let's study Let's be like Timothy and continue in what we have learned and firmly believed. Don't let anyone tell you you cannot understand God's word. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have the Holy Spirit, you can know his word. So be a student of his word. As we heard in our assurance of pardon, God has written his word on our hearts. And so study Strengthen yourself in the, in the confidence of God's promises, of the love and grace he has extended to you in Christ and the power of his salvation. And so be a student by coming on Sundays and sitting under the preaching of God's word. Be a student by studying the word for yourself. Do the hard work of digging deeper and seeking understanding. Yeah, it's gonna be hard, but the payoff is worth it. When, when I taught High school English, one of my favorite things to teach was Shakespeare. And, and here's what the, the joy for me as a teacher was. Starting at the beginning of the year, introducing Shakespeare and watching everybody's eyes glaze over like, what is this? What are you making me read? I don't understand the doth and the thee and the thou and, and, and Romeo and Juliet and Hamlet and to be or not to be, all that stuff. Intimidating. But after spending time 
teaching context, teaching how to read the language, the ebbs and flows, how to get inside the meaning. What is Shakespeare getting at? You go from a place of confidence to a place of understanding and actually embracing, but that takes time. And here's, here's what's great about Scripture compared to reading Shakespeare. The Holy Spirit isn't in Shakespeare. We don't have the Holy Spirit helping us learn Shakespeare. There isn't the gospel promises in Shakespeare. In Scripture, we have those things. So despite the challenge, there's promise when we study. And be a student in community on Sunday mornings, in gospel communities, in your living room, in coffee shops, in restaurants, study together. God intended we do the hard work of study together. We need each other. So speak truth to one another. Study truth. Teach one another. And and don't even let your personal study just be for you alone. Study for your brothers and sisters. Take what you're learning to encourage or maybe correct your brothers and sisters. And don't just study for yourself and for the church. Study for your world. God is going to use your study to take into this world and speak to others about Jesus Christ. As missionaries, we study so we can share the gospel with others. So our study is never about just us. So Paul grounds Timothy's confidence in that God's word is understandable and also that God's word is inspired Timothy, be confident in God's word because it is inspired. In 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul writes, all scripture is breathed out by God. More precisely, we could say all scripture is God-breathed words. So Timothy, your confidence in the midst of difficulty is God-breathed words. It's not the traditions of men or even grand ideas about God and great theology. Your confidence is God-breathed, God-spoken words, the very word of God. And so God has spoken to us. Grasp that for a moment. The God of the universe has spoken to us, not just in ideas, but in specific words. Yes, God used men to write the scriptures. We absolutely believe that. God used people, human beings, to write scripture. And so the scriptures have the voice and the tone and the style of individual human beings, but the words are God's. They belong to the Lord. So God has spoken. He has come near to us with his very words. He's present. So when you open scripture, when you open scripture, this is God's presence to you, his very words to you. He is near you in his word. And that God, or that that Scripture is God breathed, means something very important for us. That these words carry God's authority. Now, parents, when you speak to your kids, your words carry the authority of you, right? And so when God speaks to us with his words, it's carrying his authority. So, theologian John Frame states Scripture is God's language, it's telling us what to do or to believe and do directing our emotions, our preoccupations, our priorities, our joys and sorrows. So as sovereign king and creator of the universe, God has the power and the right to declare reality. His words dictate what is true. His words dictate what is good and evil. His words dictate meaning and purpose. 
And so because he is God, and because his word declare, has authority, his word, the scriptures, tell us how we ought to live. His words tell us how we ought to think. His words tell us how we ought to believe and feel. His words tell us what to do with our sexuality, what to do with our money, what to do with our power, what to do with our relationships. It tells us how to exist in marriage or parents, how to be a friend, how to engage our world and love others and serve others. His word gives us direction on how we ought to order our lives. And this passage in 2 Timothy is also very clear and very specific about where we find these authoritative words of God, the Old Testament and the New Testament. That is where God's authoritative revelation, God-breathed words are found. It isn't in the Quran. It isn't in the Book of Mormon. It isn't in self-proclaimed prophets walking around saying, thus saith the Lord, thinking they have authority to speak into our lives. It's not in books that we find where someone claims to have carried on a conversation with God and here's what God told them. Authoritative, God-breathed words are found in the scriptures and the scriptures alone. And here's why this issue of authority and inspiration is so important. So in the Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church absolutely affirmed and still affirms that scripture is inspired and authoritative word of God. And if they just did that full stop, no problems. But here's what happened And here's what still continues to happen. It's not just the scriptures. It's scriptures plus tradition. They hold up God's inspired word and tradition with equal authority. Here's what the Roman Catholic Catechism Catechism states. As a result, the church to whom the transmission and interpretation of revelation is entrusted does not derive her certainty about all revealed truths from the Holy Scriptures alone. Both scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. The problem is that the Roman Catholic Church has elevated tradition, which is that authoritative teaching by the popes and by the bishops. That teaching has just as much authority as the scriptures. And so where these two things may contradict they're still held in equal authority. So when Luther comes along and says, hey, guess what? Indulgences, not taught in scripture. The Roman Catholic Church says it's tradition, equal of, has equal authority. Hey, there's nothing in scripture about penance. Well, tradition teaches penance. Hey, there's nothing in there about praying to Mary. There's nothing in there about mass. There's nothing in there about purgatory. All tradition, all taught with equal authority. And, and when you dig down deeper into this, you see that the Roman Catholic Church was teaching Christians practices and beliefs that one, didn't align with Scripture, but also bound their consciences with heavy rules and authority. Tradition wasn't leading them into freedom in Christ, but away from freedom in Christ, into man-made teachings that held them down, that oppressed them, that kept them in the state of guilt and anxiety and uncertainty. Christians that had no notion that they'd been set free in Jesus Christ. That salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so the reformer said, hey, time out. Time out. 
It is only scriptures that contain God-breathed words, so only scripture can be our highest authority. And, and the, the reformers were not anti-tradition. So this is something we need to clarify. They weren't anti-tradition, meaning they learned from the past. They loved the past. They kept quoting the church fathers left and right if you read their readings. There were certain practices in the church that they said, hey, we can hold on to these things. But only as if they line up with Scripture. If they're not coming from Scripture, if it's not lining up with Scripture, then it's got to go. And it certainly doesn't have equal authority as Scripture. And so they weren't trying to completely rid the church of tradition. They were trying to say, hey, when the rubber meets the road, when we, we come down to the bedrock of authority, it's Scripture alone that is our authority. And so we need to align our teachings and our practices and our beliefs with Scripture alone. And so for us as a church, First City, we are certainly not anti-tradition. <clears throat> Excuse me. We root ourselves in creeds and confessions. We often cite catechisms coming from the Reformation. We love tradition because it grounds us in history. It grounds us in a bigger piece of the church. We're not just making things up as we go along. We're not just chasing fads. But we grab hold of tradition only as it helps us to understand and grow deeper in the truth of God's word, as it grounds us deeper in our soul authority. And it's the same thing with common grace. So common grace insights from things like science and medicine and psychology and philosophy and sociology, as long as those things are helping us deepen our understanding of who we are in Christ, deepening our understanding of what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to be a human being in this world, standing on the authority of God's word, then they're great guides, but they're not our master. Scripture alone is our highest authority. And so at First City Church, our response to the truth of the scriptures are inspired is be a doer. Be a doer. Submit your life to the good and loving authority of God. Find your freedom in Christ by believing the gospel and following Jesus in righteousness and obedience. Look, sin is a cruel master. Sin will chew you up, spit you out. Sin does not care, does not love you, does not care about the effects it has on you. And so if, if you are living by your sin, if you're living in you-breathed words, not God-breathed words, then that authority you have submit yourself under, the path of that, the end of that, is destruction. It's death. It's judgment. It's not life. It's not salvation. It's not hope. And so ask yourself, where have you submitted yourself to you-breathed words? Where have you submitted yourself to an authority that is not God's word? an authority that, that goes deeper into your own pride and your own desires and your own selfishness. God's word says, come under the good authority of Christ. Come on the good authority of his word and his word alone. And we also may not think we are given over to, to, to tradition, but where have we given certain practices and beliefs equal footing with God's word? Ah, oh, this is so deceptive. We're so good at sort of finding something in God's word and sort of being able to justify certain practices or certain beliefs and convince ourselves it's God speaking. Convince ourselves it's God author God's authority. 
But where have we elevated our own teachings and our own preferences to the level, the same authority as God's word? Here's an example. And I think it will hit home somewhat, but also I'm not going to meddle too much with this one. But so much of our culture, the identity politics of our culture, has elevated man-made teachings and rules and beliefs to the same authority. And this is where you see it. Oh, if you're a real Christian, you'll vote this way. Oh, really? <laughs> if you're a real Christian, you'll have this political stance. Really? Have, have we not elevated our political traditions to the same authority of God's word? And here's the other side of it. So much of the identity politics in our culture binds people's consciences. Like, I'm going to make you feel guilty. You need to believe this. You need to do this. Binds people's consciences to man-made rules. And this is the beauty of God's word. It sets us free from the tyranny of man-made rules. It sets us free from having to have our conscience whipped this way and that way with the cultural winds. Because man-made rules bind consciences heavy-handedly. They put rules. You have to do. You have to do this. You have to do this. Look, being a doer, the essence of being a doer as far as following Christ is not about earning anything. It's not about earning and doing so you can be accepted. It's you've been accepted in Jesus Christ. You have new life through the Holy Spirit. Now walk in obedience and follow Christ. It's entirely different. It's flipped. Being a doer is about walking in the acceptance you already have, walking in righteousness and holiness and love and hope because of what Christ has done and you belong to him and now you follow him into life. And so let's, let's do away with tradition that binds our conscience and, and seeks to elevate itself to the same status as the word of God. Now it's okay to have political positions. It's okay to have certain traditions and certain practices. But never let those things rise to the same authority in your life as Scripture. And when Scripture calls you to have a higher allegiance in Christ, follow that. Because that pathway is always life. And do not follow the man-made traditions. And so God's word calls us, or that Timothy, uh, excuse me, Paul's, grounding Timothy's confidence in God's word being understandable, inspired, and finally powerful. Timothy, be confident in God's word because it is powerful. This is what Paul writes in verses uh, 15, 16, and 17, that the scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. They're profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Timothy, put your confidence in the power of their scriptures, for their power leads to salvation. Put your confidence in the power of the scriptures, because their power teaches and corrects and trains and leads you into righteousness. It transforms those that you're discipling. God's word is not weak, it's not empty. God doesn't speak hoping something will have an effect. God speaks. And nothingness is transformed into worlds and stars and galaxies and planets. 
God speaks and light comes out of darkness. God speaks and water and land emerge. Plants spring up from the ground. Animals are formed. God speaks and man rises from the dust with life in his veins and breath in his lungs. God speaks and rebellious sinners are transformed into those who follow Christ in obedience and worship him alone. God says this in his word in Isaiah 55, 10 through 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my words be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the things for which I sent it. In this analogy, most of the time, water is fairly unremarkable. Like it just sort of, it rains. I mean, sometimes rain ruins our camping plans. Sorry for those of you that are going to go camping this weekend. Uh, but, but most of the time, we just, we don't notice it. It's just kind of part of the natural order. But, but what rain is doing is it's nourishing the earth. It's causing that slow, imperceptible growth in the crops and in the grass. And we don't really see rain's effects, but it's having an effect. Sometimes water is violent and dramatic as we saw in hurricanes Harvey and Irma and Jose, powerful, destructive, makes a big statement and categorically just changes things. It's the same with God's word. Sometimes God's word breaks in in dramatic and powerful ways and completely just disrupts and makes a mess and transforms things. And it's like, whoa, we're all knocked over. But more often, it's happening in small, imperceptible ways. It's, it's in little, small growth over days and months and years. But here's the point in Isaiah. It's still working. It's still powerful, even though we don't always see it and can't always trace it. God's word never returns void. God speaks and things happen. He's not wasting time. He's not wasting words. And so we can have hope and we can have confidence that God's word is powerful. And so Paul is telling Timothy, God's word is powerful. Put your trust in it. And what this means, that God's word is powerful, it means it is sufficient. I mean, again, we have a lot of common grace. We have a big, magnificent world, and God has given us wonderful truths and insights and things that we can learn from. There are sources of truth and knowledge about our world that are outside of Scripture. But it's when we go to those sources of knowledge, when we go to books or philosophy or sociology or psychology, not in order to enhance and grow deeper in something, but to say, you know, Scripture, there's a gap in Scripture. Scripture isn't cutting it here. I need something else. This isn't working, and so I go to something else then we're saying scripture isn't sufficient. Then we're saying scripture isn't powerful. Then we're saying that scripture doesn't have everything that I need to know God and walk in godliness and grow as a disciple of Jesus. Essentially what we're saying is God's held back. God, God hasn't given me everything that I need. He, he's sort of being cheap with me. He's leaving me in this place where I, I, I'm stuck and I can't grow and, and what he has given me isn't powerful enough. And so there's nothing wrong with embracing truth wherever we may find it. But let's not lose our confidence in the power of God's word. God has not held back. He has given us everything we need for life and godliness 
as Second Peter says. He's not withheld the truth. He's not withheld anything that is profitable to us. He's not left us in the dark. He doesn't stand at a distance. Ah, oh, he's saving sinners. He is, through his word, making those wise unto salvation. He's transforming sinners more and more into the image of Christ. He's at work in your life. He's at work in those around you. His word is sufficient and powerful as you disciple one another and love one another. His word is powerful. He's not left you powerless. And so what does this mean? That God's word is powerful. Well, be a lover. God's word tells us that he created this world as good and a beautiful place. God's word tells us that in spite of our sin and our rebellion, he's purposed to save a people. God's word tells us that in Jesus Christ, we are saved through grace, by grace, through faith, in Christ. Say that Jesus came and lived a perfect life for you. He died to pay for your sins and now he's resurrected and reigning in victory and that salvation is found in him. God has written this incredible love letter to his people. He loves us this much. Our, his power is given to us. And so as he speaks to you in his word, as he holds out hope in words of his love and his power and his salvation. Let that draw you to him in love. Learn to love his word because it speaks love to you. Learn to love his word because it speaks hope and healing to you. Learn to love his word because it speaks of a great salvation that Jesus Christ has accomplished and will finish when he returns. And because Christ has held out so much in his word, let us love that. Let us respond in worship to that. So four years after nailing his 95 thesis to the church door, Luther found himself standing before the Holy Roman Emperor and church authorities demanding he recant his teaching. The future of the Reformation in many ways hung in the balance. If he, if he recants here, all this momentum was lost. All this new teaching was lost. And in the face of enormous pressure to recant, knowing full well he could face death, Luther responds this way. Unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. Church, with scripture as alone as our highest authority, knowing that it is understandable, knowing that it is inspired, and knowing that it is powerful, let's say here we stand. We cannot do otherwise. God help us. Amen.